0: A few months ago, my son Nathan, who is six and a half years old and in grade two at Grace, came home and asked us a question that we didn't expect he would ask until maybe he was 12 or 13. He came home and asked us, Mommy and Daddy, what is sex? He went on to innocently ask about terms to different body parts which were not very appropriate for someone his age to know. We asked him, Son, where did you learn these words And who taught them to you? He told us his classmates at school. Good thing we were able to answer his questions age appropriately. However, the reality hit, unfortunately, that even in a very sheltered environment, even in a very conservative culture, the hyper-sexualized culture of our times is shattering the innocence of our young children and affecting all of us. The sex culture is everywhere. It is on our computers. It is in the ads that seem to pop out every time we're surfing to innocuous websites. It is in our schools. It is seasoned in our jokes and in our conversations. Sex is found in television, in the movies. It's found in the best-selling books that we read. It's seen in the magazine covers at the checkout counter. It's on our clothes, it is in the fashion that we wear, it is in our smartphones, it is on the billboards as we ply the roads of Manila. Sex is in our hearts and in our minds, it is everywhere. And so let us not be naive about this very important subject matter. The issue of sex is something we unfortunately have to address age appropriately at a younger and younger age. And I realize that this subject matter is something that our Asian culture doesn't talk much about. And yet the issue of sexual immorality is something that is pandemic, widespread in our Asian culture. And it is good that it is addressed in the scriptures. And so we will study it this morning. As we continue our series entitled Culture Wars, we've been looking at cultural practices and beliefs that are a part of our environment that we need to filter through a biblical grid to see if it is something that we need to accept or to transform. As we've already talked about, culture is the way of thinking, the way of living, the way of behaving that defines a group of people. But because we don't actively think about the culture, we allow the environment to define our set of beliefs, our set of standards, and what we would call our worldview. Only when we are challenged with an an exposure or introduction to an opposing cultural way of acting or believing or a a culturally different practice that we are made aware of the culture, the worldly culture that has influenced our mind. And it is a Christian's responsibility, as we talked about a few weeks ago, to engage to transform the culture for Jesus Christ. So how do we approach this hyper-sexualized culture where modesty and holiness is thrown out the window? We want to look at the scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we exposit verse 3 to 7. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 3 to 7. Now you may be thinking we're going back to the Bible to help us define the sex culture of which we are a part It must be that Paul was writing this epistle to a very conservative almost British Victorian culture Where everyone was prim and proper If you think that is what characterized the Roman Empire Then you don't understand much about the Roman culture Paul was addressing a people who were living in a hyper-sexualized culture across the Roman world. Sexual immorality was not only out in the open, it was encouraged as norm in the culture. It was a culture where anything goes. Prostitution was rampant. Even the priests of the false gods partook in this. Incest was commonplace. Adulterous relationships were the norm, even in some cases an act of worship to their false gods. And in this hypersexualized culture of the Roman world, Paul is going to call those who are the followers of Jesus Christ to live a very different way. He's asking them to transform the culture in which they live. The very same call our Lord challenges us to live out in this 21st century, and with it, the hypersexualized culture. I'm going to begin by giving five principles for how we are to engage the culture. Reminders for us. Then I will give some specific application points. We begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with verse 3. Look with me. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Paul begins this section to the Romanized Thessalonians by telling them the very heart of God. He introduces them to the heart of God, and he says that the will of God is for you to be holy. You know, everyone's always asking about the will of God. How do I discern the will of God? How do I know the will of God? It is right here in plain language in verse 3. It is the will of God that His people are holy. Any action, any lifestyle apart from holiness is not His will. It is not God's will that you look at pornography. It never will be. It is not God's will that you are in an adulterous relationship, both physically or emotionally. It is not God's will that you sin. The New King James uses the word, your sanctification is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the idea of being set apart, being set apart to be more dedicated to God in holiness. And that dedication to be more Christ-like takes the form of abstaining, avoiding sexual immorality. That's what verse 3 tells us, with the help of the Holy Spirit. It is adamantly clear from this verse that holiness is, And sexual immorality for a Christian are mutually exclusive. One cannot live a holy life and then practice sexual immorality, whatever the justification. Now, the specific details of what constitutes sexual immorality is not listed in detail here, as they are listed in other books in the New Testament. But they would include every form of sexual practice that is outside of God's revealed will. That includes adultery, whether it is premarital or extramarital. That includes homosexuality, which we'll talk about next week, and other deviant perversions. You see, the word for sexual immorality, porneia in the Greek, is from where we get our modern word today, pornography. Now, unless you begin to think that sex is bad or sex is dirty, can I just stop here and state that Sex is not bad, and sex is not dirty. In fact, it is beautiful. God is the creator of sex. It was his purpose in creating sex for our pleasure. Yes, for our pleasure. God, when he uniquely created us, man and woman, made us with desires. He made us with attractions. He made us with the pheromones and the hormones that seem to drive us crazy. And yet God has placed the enjoyment of sex in the bounds of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Here's what one theologian says. I find that there is nothing but godliness in marriage. To be sure, when I consider marriage, only the flesh seems to be there. Yet my father must have slept with my mother, made love to her, and they were nevertheless godly people all the patriarchs and prophets in the bible did likewise the longing of a man for a woman is god's beautiful creation and you know who said that the great theologian martin luther of 600 years past he understood that sex is not dirty sex is beautiful created by god for our good pleasure But because of sin and this sinful world in which we live, what God has intended as good has been twisted and has been perverted. So now the world thinks that sexual freedom equates to happiness. But studies have shown that sex outside of marriage is detrimental to the emotion, to the spiritual, to the physical aspects of our life. It is also empty and satisfying outside of the marriage relationship. And because God loves us so much And because God wants to protect us God set the limits for the enjoyment of sex Both physically and emotionally In the boundaries of the marriage relationship Sex outside of marriage is immoral And therefore sin And so to enjoy the beauty of sex It only occurs in the marriage relationship Just like food, it is meant to be enjoyed But if you don't follow the rules that come with cooking it and following the instructions and the boundaries, you are at risk for getting sick. If you don't cook the food well, whether it's E. coli or salmonella or whatever. But if you follow the rules, you get to enjoy it. So it is with sex. Anything outside of what God has graciously planned for us is detrimental to us and to others, as we're going to see. But that which is in the bounds of that which God has set for us is something we can enjoy without guilty feelings. It is for our good pleasure. So the first principle is the will of God is for us to live in holiness. It's right there. Since it is God's will for us to live a holy life, there is a responsibility that we have. Look at verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and, honor. and here's our second principle, if you're taking notes, number two. The personal responsibility to overcoming sexual sins, self-control. We have to learn how to control our own bodies with its passions and desires. That is our responsibility. Self-control is the response to one's sexual desires and urges. It is something that must be learned, it must be lived out. You see, a lot of people think that they are the victims of the circumstance that surround them. Or that passions got in the way and so they fell. People come up to me sometimes and say, well, pastor, you know, we didn't expect it. It was just such a romantic evening. And then we fell into sin. Whatever the justification the Bible tells us, there is a responsibility Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. You need to know how to control your body. And our self-control, as the fruit of the Spirit, is through the help of the Spirit in the power of God. Whatever the method of self-control, verse 4 says, it must be holy, it must be honorable. You see, for the Christian, self-control can take the form of setting very clear-cut boundaries. What boundaries have you set? For yourself, with your conviction, so that you will never fall into sexual immoral acts. This is part of the self-control process. For some of you, that may include setting the boundary and the conviction that you will never have sex before marriage. And to see this through, to live a self-controlled life, you set rules for you and your date that you will never be by yourself in a private place where no one else is there. You set the rule and the boundary that you will always enjoy one another's company in a very public open space, sometimes with other friends. That you will be home by 10 every evening. That you will not drink alcohol that will inhibit your judgment. This is all part of setting the boundaries that is a part of taking up the responsibility of being in control of your body. Ladies, and including some men, this includes dressing appropriately. Young ladies, this is this means not allowing men to have their hands all over you in inappropriate places. As you learn that great rule in kindergarten, it applies now. Keep your hands to yourself. It is your responsibility for each of you to guard, to protect yourself in self-control. For the married men and the married women, this self-controlled measure includes not being with someone of the opposite gender by yourself in an isolated place. Not having a conversation with the opposite gender that your spouse does not know about. I know many of you carry multiple phones. Some phones you keep hidden and away from your spouse. You must ask the question, why? Why? My wife is able to read all of my phone messages, all of my emails, and I'm able to do the same with her phone and her email. Not that we often do it. Both of us are busy enough, and we have a high level of trust. But at least the option is always there. Cindy knows all the passwords to my accounts. So that makes planning a surprise party for her very difficult. And so I just don't do it. I don't plan parties for her. But is it okay to give up certain things so that your marriage will be safeguarded? So that no one can come between you and your spouse. When I have a massage at home, the door is always unlocked and I often invite my wife to sit in the room and she can watch TV and She likes to talk with me, but I tell her, I don't want to talk to you. I'm relaxing. Talk to the therapist. I like her there. So that it avoids any perception or any possibility of temptation. Because a pastor is no more susceptible to sexual sin than you are. The reality is I like her there because I end up falling asleep and I want her to pay the lady and tip her so I won't be waking up. But I think you know what I'm talking about when I refer to our responsibility of self-control. It is up to us to safeguard and ensure that we don't put ourselves into situations that allow us to fall into temptation. You and I have a responsibility to practice self-control, whether as an unmarried Or as a married couple. And since we're talking about responsibilities. Parents. You have a responsibility. To talk to your children. About sex. And their role. As godly young men. And young women. Because how are they. To protect themselves. How do they know about this very important subject. If you don't talk to them about it. They will find out one way or the other. And guess where their information will come from? It will come from their friends at school. And you know where their friends got their information from? From their older brother and sister. And who knows where their older brother and sister got their information. And that is why there is so much misinformation out there. If you don't talk to them about this subject of sex, then they are smarter than you. They will Google it on the internet. And what appears are things they should not be exposed to. And you know how much misinformation is out there on the Internet. Cindy was telling me as she grew up, her parents being typical Chinese parents, never talked to her about this subject. And in her mind as a child, as a tween, because of the movies and the TV shows she watched, she thought that one gets pregnant by kissing Laughable, but there is a more sinister aspect to this. Unless one is talked to by their parents, then it is very easy to prey upon your child. Because there will be people who understand the naivety of your children, and they will prey on them and tell them, you know what, nothing's going to happen. You won't get pregnant if you do this. Do not wait until it's too late. It is your responsibility as parents to tell them, not the schools, not the church's responsibility. We talk about this subject in the church, but the primary responsibility is in your hands as parents. Don't wait until it's too late. Now, you may say, Pastor, self-control is difficult. It's hard. Setting boundaries is very difficult. I can't control myself. What's the key to overcoming sexual sins? Look at verse 5. The Bible says, Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles, who do not know God. And here's our third principle. The key to overcoming sexual sins is to know God. The Gentiles, who are not believers in this context, are given over to lust because they don't know God. They don't know his principles. They do not walk closely with him. And Paul tells us that we are to overcome sexual temptation by knowing God. If a person really walks with God, then their attitude towards sex changes. They will realize that God gives them victory over sexual temptation. Knowing God is the fundamental basic requirement to living a holy life. Do you walk so closely with God that you honor him and you respect what he has planned for your life with regards to sex? Now, we won't go into much detail about knowing God since you've heard countless sermons about this topic. But understand that unless you know the heart of God, you will find it very difficult to overcome sexual sins. Now, you may be thinking, okay, pastor, thanks for the recommendation, the reminder, the key. I'll try it out. But, you know, if I fall into sexual sin in my mind or physically act out, it's not a problem. It doesn't hurt anyone. What's going to happen? Verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. And here's our fourth principle. A reminder to overcoming sexual sin, God judges. God judges when we fall into sexual sin and immorality. You see, sexual sins and immorality involves other people. They are either complicit in the act or they are the victims. Now, you yourself may say, you know, I don't care much about God. I don't walk with Him. You may choose not to follow God's will. But when you engage in sexual immorality, you are causing the other party to sin. You are involving them in a behavior that is against the will of God. And so God's judgment, the Bible says in verse 6, will be upon you. Even if you participate in practices that you say hurt no one, like pornography. If you watch pornography... You are complicit because you are aiding in the sex trade and that you are responsible for. And the Bible says it will call down upon you God's judgment. If you tempt another into sin by the way that you dress and how you put pressure on them to engage in immorality through touching inappropriately or in fornication, then God will judge you. That's what the Bible says. That's a great reminder And that should be a deterrent for those of you who think that nothing's going to happen to me. If you are one who fears the wrath of God, then the Bible says abstain from sexual immorality because judgment will follow. But our culture doesn't say that. Our culture says, you know what? Don't worry about it. You Christians, you're so uptight. Have a little bit of fun. It doesn't hurt anyone. But it does. And not only are you causing yourself to sin, you're causing others to sin. And you are ripe for God to throw down His judgment. There are consequences to sin. Your entire life, from one act and evening of indiscretion, can change your life forever as you become a single mother in high school. And how one night of indiscretion can lose 30 years of trust that you as a husband and a wife have brought together. How can she or how can he trust you ever again? One night of pleasure, a lifetime of consequences. And there's a whole host of other things that can happen to you. Diseases like sexually transmitted diseases, we call them STDs, of which AIDS are part. There are no cure cures to STDs. Once you get it, you get it for life. And you get those sexually transmitted disease by engaging in immoral acts. And you say, it doesn't affect anyone. My one-night stand won't affect my family. No one knows. If you are in an adulterous relationship, you risk bringing that disease back to your spouse. Delegates and experts at the last World AIDS Conference in the U.S. were asked two simple questions. First, would you use a contraceptive to guarantee protection from both pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases? The unanimous answer from the World AIDS Conference is no. There is no 100% contraceptive that will prevent you from getting pregnant having XCDDs. The second question was asked, what would they do? The response was fascinating. They suggested sticking with only one life partner. Wow, this came as a revealing shock to the world press because God's Word has suggested the very same thing. If you want to avoid pregnancy before marriage, If you want to avoid STDs, then you live in the bounds of the marriage relationship with one partner. And both of you come into the marriage relationship as a virgin. That's how you protect your health, 100%. Don't play this game of percentages with God. 99%, there is still 1% chance that you can get it. consequences to sex outside of the boundaries of marriage are that which are revealed to us but because god so loved us and he so wants to protect us he sets the boundary and he says i will judge you if you leave the boundaries that i've set it's a good reminder for you and i look at verse 7 For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Paul concludes this section by giving us the purpose of our lives in overcoming sexual sins. What is the purpose? We have a higher calling than than simply avoiding sexual sins. The purpose to which we are called is to live in holiness. Constable writes, A holy life demonstrates God's supernatural power at work overcoming what is natural, and it glorifies God. A life of holiness transforms the culture of which we are a part because we overcome what is natural, what is commonplace, and that glorifies God. And so if every one of your business associates has a mistress, and your grandfather has one and your father was one, but you don't have one, You are engaging the culture and saying, there is another way to live. And this is where I take my stand. And if you are not yet married and you say to the world, I am a virgin. And they laugh at you and they ridicule you. You stand firm and you say, this is who I am. Because my purpose in this life is to glorify God with a holy life and I have something that you can never get back. And although the world may think you ill, the Bible tells us when we can overcome with the help of the Holy Spirit what is commonplace in the culture and God is glorified and it is through your holiness that you stand out and stand up. You see, the game is not how close you can get to the edge without falling over. The game is how far you can get away from the edge. Since we are called to holiness and not to uncleanliness, I want to spend the remainder of this time to debunk three myths regarding sex that pervades our culture today. Three myths. And, of course, we're going to use the Scriptures to do so. So would you turn a few pages over in your Bibles And turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 to 20. The first myth, if you're taking notes, number one. Sex outside marriage is okay. Here's the myth of our culture today. It is okay to have sex outside of marriage, whether it is before marriage, we call that premarital sex, or whether in marriage, we call that adultery, we call that fornication. You know what the Bible says about this? Look at verse 15 to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, a prostitute? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Men and women are not to have sex outside of marriage because to engage in the act of sex is to bond the body to another. And since we are members of Christ, we are bound to him. It grieves Jesus Christ to know that we have been bonded to one whom we are not married to. The union between two people is not just physical. It involves the entire person. Because now you are joined to that adulterer. And the verse shows the gravity of the sin. The two of you have become one flesh. How can that happen when you are joined to the Lord in one spirit with Him? So perish the thought Debunk the myth that sex outside of marriage is ever okay. It is never okay, whatever the circumstance, whatever the justification, however strong your urges are. Because we've taken what is black and white and we've made it gray in our convoluted, perverted mind just to say, well, I think God will understand. God is pretty clear on this subject. You do not cross the line. Those of you who are not yet married... Do not put yourself into situations that will cause you, tempt you to cross the line. Don't try to push the boundaries of what is okay. It's not simply the act of sex that is sin. It involves inappropriate touching or the games that we try to play to say, well, this is not really sex. The best gift you can give to your spouse on the day... Of marriage is that you can give them the gift that no one else can, which is the gift of your virginity. You know, when a young man says to a young woman, If you love me, you will do this. Young women, married or unmarried, run away. Because that man does not love you unconditionally, that man loves you with a condition, a conditional if. If you will do this, then you will show that you love me or I love you. Drop that guy or drop that gal. Because if he can say that to you, he can say that to another. For those in the marriage relationship, if you're flirting with a married man or married woman, and he professes his love to you or she professes her love to you, get away. Because if he can cheat on his wife, he can cheat on you. And probably has. If you are married, then your search for someone else ends permanently the day you say, I do. Do not ever even entertain the thought of being with another. If you say, my spouse does not give me the emotional support that I need. You do not find it in someone of the opposite gender. Even if they make you happy, even if nothing happens, we're just simply talking. It's a recipe for disaster. No one goes into the marriage relationship saying, I'm going to start an affair. If you talk to those who will have an affair, they simply fall into it. We don't know what happened. It just happened. It happened because the boundaries were not set properly. There is no justification for sex outside of a marriage, whatever the culture tells you. If you are in an adulterous relationship this morning, whether physical or emotional, then you need to stop it now. Whatever the reason, God does not approve of it. You see, there's no such thing as incompatibility as the grounds for adultery. There's no such thing as irreconcilable differences when it comes to divorce I like what Swiss psychiatrist Paul Tornier says about incompatibility. He says this, Incompatibility is a word that we have created to give us an excuse to get out of a relationship in which we are unwilling to work at. And that's so true. Incompatibility is a word that we have created to give us an excuse to get out of the relationship in which we were unwilling to work at. Once you are married, you work on your marriage. You give up certain things so that your marriage will be safeguarded. And you don't ever consider sex outside of marriage as ever being okay. The second myth of our culture says this, number two. It's okay if I just look. It's okay if I just look. As long as the actual act of sex is not committed, I can lust in my mind freely. No one will ever know. I can look at pornography. Look what the Bible says, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. We are not to linger in our look. We are to flee. You know, it's interesting. The Bible, when he talks about all the other sins, especially in that classic passage on the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, we are to stand firm against the fiery darts of Satan, against sin. Hold fast. But when it comes to the area of sexual sin, you know what the Bible tells us? Flee, get away. Remember Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, when he was being seduced by Potiphar's wife as a young man? He didn't stand there and try to reason. Well, you know, Potiphar's wife, this is wrong. You're married. What did the Bible tell us? Joseph ran. He ran away. I'm sure Potiphar's wife was beautiful. He would not even entertain the thought he fled. Why? Because as it relates to sexual sin, the God who created us knows that we will fall. So it's not okay just to look, to let our eyes linger, and let our minds begin to fantasize. Some of you think, oh, pastor, don't be so strict. I'm just admiring the beauty of God's creation. How many of you can look at a beautiful woman and handsome man and say, wow, praise God? And you begin to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now, if you can really worship God as you're oogling over these people, then maybe. But the reality is 100% of us begin to lust after them in our mind. We begin to think, how come my husband doesn't look like that? How come my wife doesn't look like that? Thoughts come into our minds are not only inappropriate but do not glorify God that's why the English vernacular we have an idiom we call them eye candy something for the eye sweet to the eye something for us to crave the media knows well that our eyes are attracted to sexual things look at the print ads look at how the models act and dress the Bible says flee from it you say come on pastor it doesn't hurt anyone I'm not committing fornication. But look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus says, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Looking and doing in the eyes of God are the same. So what do you want me to do, pastor? Do you want me to go buy some blinders? Do you want me just to look down every time I walk? Do you want me to tape a picture of my wife or husband on my glasses? Uh, Which, by the way, is a great way to avoid temptation. You know, my office is filled with pictures of my wife and children, which my wife put there. And my computer and my smartphone, the screen is pictures of my wife and children. Why? To remind me that I have a wife. And I have children, and that it is not okay to look. But this world is covered in sin. Look at the billboards as you ply EDSA. It's everywhere. In the book Every Man's Battle by Steve Arterbum, he advocates a technique called bouncing your eyes. We can't avoid the sexual images that surround us. But we can avoid by not lingering and beginning to lust. Because if you stare long enough, you will sin. So just bounce your eyes, and you know the things you're supposed to look at and the things you're not supposed to look at. And if you're still unconvinced, remember what happens in your mind as you begin to look. Even for the women who look at other models, they begin to covet, they begin to lust. And what comes into our minds, we desire to act out. That's why pornography is dangerous. Pornography is oftentimes the start of the journey for many murderers to do what they do. You know, when they're interviewed, they're asked, how did you become this way? Many of them, most all of them, began when they began to fantasize as they looked at pornography. And they so wanted to act out upon it And by the way, pornography is not just a problem of the men. According to recent surveys, pornography is watched both by men and women equally. Pornography feeds the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, but it never satisfies. You simply want more. It leaves the one looking, craving more in order to achieve the same sexual high. Pornography sensualizes the viewer's mindset. It begins to warp and perverse your mind. The images that you see may often last years, even a lifetime. It's like drug addiction. You need more stimulants, more perverted stimulants. It can damage current or future marriage and then the intimacy that comes with it. Because people who look at porn find that it's difficult to enjoy true intimacy with their spouse when they are fantasizing about someone else. You see, pornography takes what God has intended as a private expression between a husband and a wife, and it prostitutes it publicly as entertainment. And that which was shocking, that which is illegal, that which is repulsive, that which is immoral, somehow in your mind becomes okay because you're desensitized to it. And then the urge comes, the burden comes to want to act out on it. And looking at pornography brings serious spiritual consequences because the power behind pornography is inherently evil. It seeks to control and dominate a viewer's life while allowing other forms of evil to to begin to influence you. Once a person begins to look at pornography, their eyes become the gateway for the evil power to enter them. It is not okay just to look. Because that which is committed in the mind is the same as committed with your entire body. That's what the Bible says. The third myth in the culture out there regarding sex is this. It's my body. It's my right. It's my right to do whatever I want. It's my body. So mind your own business. Don't tell me what I can or cannot do. Look what verse 19 and 20 tells us. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Note this, underline this, circle this, which are God's. Your body is the residence of the Holy Spirit as one who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It has been bought with the price, the price being the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore the gift of sexual expression is God-given. It is not a right. And we'll talk more about this next week. But the gift of sexual expression is not a right. It is God-given. Jesus Christ got on the cross of Calvary, and he died for you and me, and his blood was shed. So that he could win you over and purchase you out of the slavery of sin and claim you as his own. So how you present your body and what you do with it reflects the Christ who died for you. So in marriage, we glorify God in our intimacy. But outside of marriage sex is a defilement and you have the right to glorify god with your body against this myth is a call for modesty i'm not advocating wearing clothes from the neck to your ankle with only your head sticking up or wearing long sleeve buttoned up shirts in this tropical weather but I think our culture suffers from a shortage of cloth in our clothes. They're just too much exposed. Just like I don't think you want to see my body because it's not very nice. I don't want to see yours either. Because nowadays nothing is left to the imagination. It's all right out in the open. In what you wear. Ask yourself the question, does it glorify God? Will God be pleased? What is the rationale for you wearing what you wear? Is it to attract someone, which I venture to guess is the reality for many of the women and even some men who wear what they wear, so that attention can be brought to themselves? Because I've worked hard and worked out for this body, and everyone needs to see it. I'm not a prude, but some shorts are simply too short. Some shirts are too revealing, both for men and the women. You were bought with a price, and that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. He died so that you can present yourself faultless, in purity, in holiness, and you reflect that by what you wear. So honor God with what you wear. There are times we go to events, and my wife and I, we talk, and I see what's out there today, and I think to myself, if my little girl Janelle ever grows up and wears something like that, she will never be allowed out of the house. And then I begin to wonder, there are a lot of parents who either are blind or do not know what their children are wearing or... Allow their children to go out in what they are wearing. And you know what the problem is? The problem is because the mothers wear the same things. The mothers try to become teenage girls and wear very inappropriate clothing. The men, likewise. Parents, it is your responsibility to speak up and tell your children that they cannot go out in what they are wearing. And yes, there will be a fight. I know there will be. And you will be called old-fashioned. But it is not about fashion or being old-fashioned. It's about modesty towards holiness. And parents, that is your responsibility. And so you need to change as well. You see, some of the most beautiful people are those who dress very appropriately. Beauty does not come from dressing inappropriately, looking in some cases, can I say this, like a prostitute. The beauty of one's life, the Scripture tells us, comes out of their walk with Jesus Christ, comes out of their smiles, the radiance of the beauty of their life, And you know what I'm talking about. You see, people who wear clothes that are inappropriate are often compensating for some other areas of their life. Some of them don't feel loved, and so somehow by dressing like this, people will love them. Some of them feel as if they have no attention or get no attention, so they dress like this to get unwanted attention. Deal with the root problem, and don't compensate by what you wear inappropriately. This is a call for modesty because your body is to glorify God because it has been bought with a price, the price of of Jesus Christ. And it must so sadden our Lord and Savior that he got up on a cross to die for your sins and my sins and have you walk out like that to cause men and women to stumble. It is a myth that is debunked it. Some of you this morning, probably all of us, have committed sexual immoral acts and have sinned because what is sin in the mind and done physically is the same to the Lord. And therefore, we need to come to the Lord in humility and seek for restoration and forgiveness through His shed blood. And if you're struggling with addiction of a sexual type or in an adulterous relationship that you can't get out of it, our church pastoral staff is ready to talk to you, to help you in this. But forgiveness comes when there is a genuine desire for change. That's why I've decided this week not to have communion. I want all of us to have a month to really self-examine our life so that we will rid ourselves of sexual immorality. And then in a month's time, we will come back together and we will partake in communion and remember that in holiness, we remember symbolically what Christ has done for us through his shed blood to allow us to be restored as white as snow. Because I understand and I realize that many of us, would simply say, hey Lord, I've been convicted this morning, sorry, I partake in communion, life goes on. And nothing radically changes in your life. And in a day's time, a week's time, a month's time, you fall back into those sexual sin, lustful thoughts, looking at things you should not be looking at, carrying on relationships that are inappropriate. And so, in this month's time, perhaps beginning this afternoon, can I share with you some very specific things you need to do? Some of you need to go home this afternoon and delete certain files from your computer, take down pictures, delete videos that are sexual in nature. Some of you need to go and throw away magazines that you have hiding that you only bring out when your spouse is not there or you're alone. Some of you need to stop watching pornography right now. And if it is something that you can control, get help for your sexual addiction. Some of you need to go home this afternoon and begin to rearrange where your computer is facing. It should be turned around to face the public because what in the world do you have to hide? Some of you who are more technologically savvy need to go and stop clearing your history on your browser. And as a moment of transparency and accountability, ask your spouse to look at all the things that you are looking at. Check what your children are watching. Be wise enough to put a filter on, putting in a password and then throwing it away so that you yourself can circumvent the boundaries that you have set So that you will not fall into temptation. Some of you need to limit your computer time. Monitor not only what your children are watching, but you yourself, and making sure there's accountability. Some of you need to go home this afternoon and share your phones. Give your spouse the passwords to your computer for accountability and transparency. Not that they're gonna go and begin to judge you, but because you have nothing to hide. And you want to safeguard your marriage relationship. Some of you need to today cut off communications with people whom you are attracted to. Colleagues, clients, suppliers. Because it makes you skip a heartbeat. And as you begin to flirt with them and interact with them. Delete their number. Have someone else entertain them. Do not allow a foothold into the sanctity of your marriage relationship. Cut off that line of communication. Forget them. Some of you need to unfriend certain Facebook friends who post inappropriate things. Some of you need to stop watching certain television shows, certain movies that cause you to lust in your mind. Some of you need to cut off adulterous relationship, whether they are of a physical type or of emotional type. Some of you have a business deal, money involved. They're your business colleague. Cut it off. Give them the money because that little money is not worth destroying your family. Some of you, businessmen, need to bring your spouses with you on your business trips. And although the company doesn't pay for it, you pay for your spouse's flight to protect your marriage. And some of you women, usually, need to go with your husbands on their business trips. So that you can also protect the sanctity of your marriage. Some of you need to make sure that you request a traveling companion of the same gender on these business trips to keep you from temptation. Some of you need to go home this afternoon and go through your wardrobe and throw away clothes that are simply too short or too offensive. Now, if you don't know what they are, you ask your grandmother to go through your clothes with you. Let me assure you, she will tell you what is appropriate and inappropriate. There needs to be a sexual revolution, and that revolution is one towards holiness and purity. Because we are compelled to engage the culture in which we live. I realize this is a subject that is not often talked about in churches, especially in an Asian-Chinese context. But you know what? What? we are not immune from this problem. According to some surveys I've read, the Chinese, the Asians, have a higher percentage of those living adulterous relationship than any other cultural group. The Asians have a higher percentage than other cultural groups of young people having premarital sex it's probably because we haven't talked much about it that this issue is pandemic in our culture and we've accepted it and we've turned a blind eye to it and we have even approved of it because of whatever reason but it's time to stand up and begin a sexual revolution towards purity that sex outside of the beautiful bounds of marriage is never okay. And we must spread that news to the world because we are called to engage this culture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a challenge even into my own heart to always ensure and make sure that the standards of holiness that I live out are not from my own mind, but from the Scriptures. If there's any this morning who are living in an adulterous relationship, both in the mind or bodily, before marriage or even in it, that through the grace and the help of Jesus Christ and through His shed blood, we ask for Your forgiveness and desire to change. Lord, we want to be holy, and those who have fallen into it, Father, they can be restored anew Because you make all things new. So I pray, Lord, that you would work a convicting work, that this afternoon, forget the embarrassment, that they would go and begin to ensure and set guidelines and principles and practices that will safeguard their marriages, their family, and parents would be responsible, and young people would set an example of what it means to glorify God with their bodies. So all the things we ask that your Spirit would do a convicting work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.